If you are ready to change the way people experience the transition to parenthood, you've come to the right place. On this podcast, we interview postpartum professionals, academics and researchers, as well as parents with unique perspectives on postpartum. Whether you've been working with new families for decades or are brand new to postpartum care, we'd love you to join us. I'm your host, Julia Jones. Hello and welcome to Newborn Mothers Podcast. Today we are having a chat with one of the people who has genuinely had one of the biggest influences on my career uh, ever, and this is Kirsten Uvnas Moberg. Uh, and Kirsten, let me tell you about how I came across your work. It was after I had been studying postpartum for probably two or three years, I had my own baby. And I found that all the postpartum stuff I was learning about wasn't really answering the questions that I had about my own experience of becoming a mother, which is that it just changed me so much from the inside out. I just felt like a completely different person. And then I was introduced to your work through an amazing um, pediatrician and lactation consultant called Christina Smiley. Oh, I know her. Yes. 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 Yeah, and yeah. she she introduced me to this idea of baby brain being a good thing. Um, and that's when I sort of dived down this whole um, researching a lot of different things, including neuroplasticity, but um, obviously oxytocin. And, and that's why I've read all of your books and I recommend them to all of my students now. So I just can't tell you what a privilege it is to, to have you on the show. Thank you for being here. It's a pleasure. Uh, and you, yes, you go. Hello. Oh, hello. Sorry, I lost you for a minute there. Um, okay. I was just going to say you're a, you were a physician, um, yes. but you do a lot of research. So can you tell us a little bit about how you came into what you do? Well, you know, I am, as you say, a physician. And I uh, thought I didn't know what, to, what, what type of physician to, to become. So... When I had my, I think the first baby, I decided that I might go back to the preclinical institutions and, and make a PhD thesis because that would help me in the long run with my career. And it would give me completely free hours in a way that you don't get in hospitals. But because at that time I was married to a, to a surgeon and, and, you know, with all these on-call nights and things, it, it was just nothing to look forward to. So I went back and did a thesis on, on, I would say rather the physiology of the gastrointestinal tract. And I got hooked because it sort of helped me to be curiosity driven, you know. I, I, I loved getting results and then to see what could you, how could you explain them because I never really appear as you expected. There is always something new. But if you keep your line, you will see that you have, uh, you're most often right in your hypothesis if you just keep on going. And then in connection with having my, my third and fourth baby, which was, you know, 10 years later, I um, suddenly lost interest in the gastrointestinal tract completely and changed my focus to oxytocin because I had experienced just like you that things happen within you. And when you have four children and you experience that these things, these sort of feelings, these reactions, these changes of your mind come every time. And I would say even more clearly by each child, I understood that must be biology somehow. And then I went into the literature to see if there was anything about changes in, in women. But you know, Everything was called psychology at that time. Psychology was explained everything. And um, to me, that was, you know, wasn't enough. So then I went into oxytocin and saw that there were nerves in the brain. And uh, then I started to do a lot of experiments with oxytocin and could show how this I would then call it oxytocin system because it's not just the hormones flowing in the circulation, actually can regulate almost all very basic physiological and also behavioral and mental functions. This was clear in, in the animal experiments that we did. But then, of course, how do you trans 
transpose that to humans. And then I was fortunate enough to have a lot of midwives that I could do big studies with at, you know, at the Department of, of uh, Women and Health at the Karolinska. And, and then we started to look for oxytocin levels and also measure a lot of other parameters and link them to oxytocin. And then we could confirm that we also have these adaptations in humans. I mean, not to the degree that you have in animals. I mean, maternal behavior in humans is not like a machinery that moves the animals in a certain direction to do specific things. But there is this turn or change of the mindset to make you more able to do and more wanting to be caring and take care of the children. So I found that reasonable. And then I started to write and, and I've started, I haven't stopped yet because you find new versions and new expressions of this, you know, big adaptation. Uh, every every time you write, because that's when you really see the new things. You sharpen your brain when you write, don't you? Yes, absolutely. And I've I've just about finished. Well, I have finished my second book, uh, mm. which you were mentioned a lot in Kirsten. So I'll send you a copy. <laughs> um, mm. But I definitely agree. When you start writing, it definitely clarifies your thoughts and it helps you kind of put the pieces of the puzzle together. And one of my favorite analogies of yours is the idea that that, you know, with research, you know some pieces of the puzzle and that when you step back and see the bigger picture, you can kind of guess, even if the research hasn't been done yet, you yep. can kind of make a, an educated guess on, oh, well, that might explain this as well. Yeah, you can. It takes, it takes as you say, you, you need a few of the, of the pieces of the puzzle, of course. And then, as in my case, I had a very good training in physiology. So I knew how you know, neurotransmitters work in the brain. I knew how the autonomic sensory nervous system functions. And then I could use other systems like the fight-flight system as a model, even if it's doing completely different things. It was obvious that the hypothalamus is a very important system for integrating these types of, of uh, I would say, psychophysiological patterns. And, and so you could actually use knowledge from also other parts of physiology to see what the pattern should be like. And then there is something called intuition too. I agree. And I would say that intuition is something that you also get more and more of when you have children. It's something that's close to empathy, that's close to, you know, trying to understand what people say. It's, 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 so this intuition is, is um, it's a broader concept, but I, I think it's very close to, you know, the, uh, the ability to, to try to read somebody else's mind. Mm -hmm. Oh, I love it. I, I also found it interesting. I never knew that you started out studying um, gastrointestinal stuff, but mm -hmm. now obviously that's linked in with your oxytocin research because you have discovered a lot of stuff about digestion and oxytocin yeah, as well. Yeah. Can you... Talk a little bit about that. Well, that, that was actually how it started, you know. I, I uh, did experiments with uh, the vagal nerve in particular, so I knew how the brain would control how the, you know, how digestion and metabolism is controlled. And um, so we did a study at the Karolinska where we could see how the levels of, you know, gastrin and cholecystokinin and insulin rose every time a mother was eating as if she is eating in parallel with the baby and of course that's very beautiful because that means that when she's eat when she's breastfeeding she is also eating herself in order to adapt the function of her gastrointestinal tract to the demands of breastfeeding this is one of those elegant i would say parallel systems now then i was at a meeting in uh, in california and um, presented these data. It was at something called the Kroc Foundation, which was a foundation, uh, I think, created by the, um, the person who owned McDonald's. And he had a lot of money, and he had this beautiful farm where he invited researchers who could come there for a few days, you know, uh, with a beautiful surrounding and a lot of good food and stuff. And then we were... Um, giving talks to each other, you know, a lot of interaction. And then I presented these data on the GI tract. And then, believe it or not, one guy in, in the um, 
in the room, he, he asked me, are you sure you're not measuring oxytocin? And I thought, he is crazy. Doesn't he see? Can't he see that it is <laughs> insulin or gastrin I'm measuring? And then, you know, it just came me like a big insight. Oh, gosh, he's right. He's telling me that these nerves are connecting to, to the vagal nerve. So you have, you know, in one way, all these effects act, act on the level of the vagal nerve, but, but the vagal nerve in turn is regulated by oxytocin at the same time as it produces milk and milk ejection and, and all these other things. So this was the first connection that, that I could sort of start to work with. And, and uh, because I could go home then and, and uh, look for oxytocin and do animal experiments where I gave oxytocin <clears throat> and could see that you got exactly these effects. So, but these are the moments, you know, when you get insight sometimes. And I was very happy to, to remember who that person was <clears throat> to thank him for that. <laughs> so, yeah. oh, no, you continue. No, but I, I don't remember who he was, you know, so I don't remember the name. Otherwise, I would contact him. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and say thank you. So one of my questions for you was going to be, um, I would like, I'm interested to know in some of the things that you've discovered that have been a little bit disruptive, you know, that other people haven't necessarily understood or agreed with straight away. Um, and it sounds like sometimes that's been the case for you. You've discovered things that have really made you have to rethink uh, how things work. So... Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, I think by, <clears throat> by starting to show that oxytocin had all these effects sort of, you know, outside the box of being a hormone for milk ejection and, 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 and birth was, was upsetting by itself because it seems as if, you know, people started to work with oxytocin 1910 something and then they started to use it clinically in 1960, 70. And I think that then, because of these effects, it was, oxytocin was put in a box called, you know, female hormone something, and lost a little in value because vasopressin, a very much related hormone and very similar, was studied to a much bigger extent at that time. And um, it's interesting. So there is something with, you know, how you value different types of findings. Now, then I could show that you had all these parallel effects during um, lactation, breastfeeding, whatever. But then what we also found, of course, was that we could induce the same, basically, we could induce the same effects, the physiological effects on stress levels or, or you know, in males also, in females and males. And then that was surprising, you know, people couldn't understand how oxytocin could reduce anxiety and stress levels and, and stimulate digestion in males. But this is the case. <clears throat> so then it was obvious that oxytocin isn't basically a female hormone. It's, it's, a, it's everybody's hormone or signaling substance. It's just that during breastfeeding and labor, you need more of it because this is the period when you really need to maximize your ability to communicate with babies, you know, in this nonverbal way. And this is the time you need to lower stress levels and to have a perfect, I would say, digestion and metabolism. But that's just, it's the tip of the iceberg because you always have it. The fetus has its own oxytocin. It has a lot of oxytocin when it's born. And, and uh, so there are many, many situations where you have oxytocin. That was questioned. Now, the, the more in, interesting thing was that we could also show that if you really give oxytocin repeatedly, you get into something even more, I would say, surprising. And that is that the effects become long-lasting. So if you give oxytocin, say, five times, they're not one. You have the effect of each individual oxytocin administration, but you also get a sustained increase which lasts for weeks or even months after the last injection. And then this is the real, I would say, very important thing because this means that you get, I mean, you get long-term 
you can you can actually interpret it as health consequences of oxytocin because you will lower your stress levels you will sort of have more less inflammation actually and you will have more uh, you know activity in systems of the body which are related to not only digestion but also to healing and restoration and growth actually and that was very difficult and i think the first paper on blood pressure we sent in to show that five injections of oxytocin would cause you know effects for three weeks in males and females you know we got the paper back several times and said this is not right and we sent it back and said it is right no <laughs> one <laughs> <laughs> said it should be immediate why do you look at three weeks and then we tried and in the end we could convince them but this just shows you how i would say the scientific system is in a way so conservative that it's difficult to come in with uh, you know with results that change the basis or the fundamentals and and um, i think especially when you sort of discuss female hormones and things you get closer to the bone somehow <laughs> and it's more uh, it's even more difficult so but that i've learned that you don't need to to bother because it's not against you it's it's uh, somehow something some scientific barrier barriers that you just have to forget and and go on and and sooner or later it gets in and then you will have a lot of other people sort of confirming it so but that's interesting but that's typical of 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 uh, i would say new ideas or or ideas that sort of are not in in line with the current concepts Yes, absolutely. And I think women often find these patterns or uh, see things from a different perspective. One of my other favorite women scientists is Marion Diamond, who did a lot of pioneering research into neuroplasticity and was the same as you, completely mm. ignored for quite a long time. And eventually, mm. obviously, people come around and go, oh, yeah, actually, there's a lot of evidence for that. We can prove that time and time again. But how is it for you as a woman? Do you feel that gives you a different perspective? But do you also think that makes it a little bit harder perhaps to get funding or recognition oh, yeah. or anything like Especially, that? Oh, oh, yes. <clears throat> because when you apply for positions, you are, I mean, the results you have are not considered important. And at least it was. I mean, today it is a little bit different because these you know issues about women in science have been raised and and there have been some i mean people have actually shown these in in a scientific way but still you know i i um, remember the first time i applied for a professorship <laughs> and that's a long time ago now and then i i i sort of my my sort of research proposal was based on the role of oxytocin in social interaction and also these anti-stress effects but you know nobody found that interesting because the normal subjects in physiology was more like physical exercise re pain research fertility for men so they had what they sort of big big number of topics that they considered you know real physiology these are the things there wasn't anything and then there there was no value to it and maybe maybe i also think basically that as you say there are some differences in the way women and male see things which are based on these you know hormonal effects or something that women somehow more easily see these things on on interaction social interaction and and rest and relaxation whereas men are a little bit more in tune with the fight flight and therefore they go for these questions and women ask other questions so i think somewhere you express your personality which is not just your personality it's it's part of the you know the female community personality when you do studies and at my, at my time then there were no other females there weren't any women in physiology who could sort of um do anything because it takes that you have some money and you have some some people working with you to be able to do something and and most women sort of uh, fell off at that time either they stopped because they they um hadn't time they didn't want to invest that much energy and time 
The other thing is that they also uh, may be, I think, tried to adapt to the system. You know, they, they did what was supposed to be done. And as soon as you do that, you lose contact with your inner research self. And maybe you don't do as interesting things. I mean, we know there are a lot of women who have been fantastic in, in doing that. But for many women, and especially those who need to be in contact with that, you know, creative, intuitive part of, of your mind, uh, need, to be, uh, need to follow your own wishes to a certain extent to enjoy it. And that's the way how to continue. You have to drive, give fuel to your curiosity by the, by the right type of fuel, I think. Yes, yes, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and I can relate that to a lot of women scientists, but another really famous one is Marie Curie, who was able to continue her work because of her husband. I think a lot of the funding and research that they did was under her husband's name, just because at the time women weren't supposed to be doing that sort of thing. So, uh, that, that was a way at that time of, of being successful. I mean, if a very, very talented woman was lucky enough to, to have a father or, or be married to somebody who were accepted, yeah. of course, in the system, they could get under that umbrella. That doesn't mean that they were not fantastic. It's just that they needed that to be able to be seen. But not all women have had that. And therefore, I think so many women have dropped out because you need somebody who supports you to, to uh, survive, I think, uh, financially, but also mentally, in, in a way, because it's very yes. hard. It takes an enormous mental strength to sort of act against, you know, oh, no, I don't think that's something, or, or <clears throat> perhaps, or, oh, no, that's absolutely nonsense, and this is not right. I mean, you have to almost be an idiot to continue. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. But you talk about it uh, just before we hit record. You were talking about this as though it's a calling for you, you know, and I think a lot of women, you need the opportunity, but you need to have that drive. And, you know, you obviously do have that drive. It is true that there is some kind of in, inner, inner motor or whatever, call it vision or mission or something that can't be stopped. And therefore you can, you, 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 you continue whatever they say or do. Maybe you have to stay for a while and take another door out of the room or you have to. So it's also a model of flexibility because it's not always necessary to, to work with um, exactly your own, I would say, uh, defined research project because you can also collaborate and you will always find bridges between others work and your own that you can sort of add to your own building of, of ideas so it's a little bit luckily it's flexible to do that like this too because with these kinds of ideas you would never get into the real real big funds because they are reserved for diabetes for cardiovascular disease cancer you know all these things um, and and uh, the, the mother-infant questions, the breastfeeding questions, these things don't, still don't have the same priority. Even if they say so, it, they haven't. Yes, and even if they're known to contribute later in life to those other big issues, you know, like World Health Organization keeps saying that we've got to focus on, you know, newborn health and mother's health. And we are going somewhere with newborn health, but mother's health around the world is still not a priority at all, even though we can see those long-term benefits. And, you know, it's, that's a very important question because it's also as if when you look at mother's health it becomes an issue of having two meetings. The mother should come for, for control before she gives birth two times or three times. Uh, and then it's the baby that you take care of after birth. Yes. Uh, it's something in the real understanding of the process that's completely out of the system. And uh, I think it takes women who have you know, these insights to create a new system to make it really, you know, the, the way the woman, the woman will, would like it. But we are not there. It's still a very, very, I've sort of been working a little bit with, with, with birth together with a 
European Union research group, or, or I would say it's been a group where we have been meeting for four years uh, and discussed things. And, and uh, the, the subject has been uh, what are the, the bad consequences of in medical interventions during birth? And it's been an eye-opener to see that, that there might be bad consequences of these interventions. But the, the most sort of, you know, the growing insight is, why the hell are they there? I mean, of course it's good to have a cesarean section if there is a very life-threatening situation. But why go on to do it on everybody? What are these kind or strange thoughts behind that? It's not only, you know... Uh, it's not, there, there is no reason for it. And then you really get to, to think, what, what is it that makes these uh, you know, crazy um, new medical interventions become the, the, the norm? That's you know, what, it's crazy, but it, it does strike me as something you said earlier, that it's probably because of a result of a lot of men perhaps working from a fight or flight <coughs> perspective Yes, you know, exactly. and that has really influenced our perspective on birth and making these decisions. But, you know, something I think my listeners will be all thinking about at home is can you talk a little bit of, about oxytocin as an intervention? How is it different in your studies of animals and of people, the oxytocin that we generate in our own body compared to oxytocin injections or nasal sprays? What, um, you know, how is that affecting people that that's now such a common thing? Are you listening to this awesome interview with a postpartum professional and thinking that this might be your calling in life too? Do you believe postpartum care could be a respected, valued and well-paid profession but feel frustrated and don't know where to start? Newborn Mothers Collective is online worldwide postpartum training and professional development with over a thousand students from 40 different countries around the world. We value human rights, scientific evidence and diversity and we'd love you to join us at newbornmothers.com. It is. Now, it is a very, very important question because, you know, this is something I've seen recently that the, the internet isn't always the perfect site to, to discuss the role of oxytocin because there are many <laughs> false ideas and rumours running around. You know, it's as if, if I think the frightening aspect of things becomes very much, um, you know, stronger, I would say, on the internet sometimes. But what, basically, if you look at the molecule oxytocin, the chemical entity, it's the same whether it's produced in yourself or if you give it as an infusion or use it as a nasal spray the same chemical molecule. There are many people who still think that synthetic oxytocin is different from endogenous oxytocin. There's no difference. There's absolutely no difference in, in the structure of the molecule. Now, the difference is, of course, that if you have your own release of oxytocin, we know that it occurs in small peaks, at least during breastfeeding and birth. You have, you know, short-lasting high peaks of oxytocin and then there is less in between and then you have a new peak and that allows the the uh, you know for during birth for example the 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 muscles in the uterus to rest a while whereas if you give an infusion you will have a high level all the time and that's very confusing to the uh, uterine muscles because they start to contract in an unphysiological way and um, that, in turn, s sort of informs the brain of something very, very strange. Because there is also this, which I think is what you are saying about, when people work with the control of the uterine functions, they still seem to almost look at the uterus as a so-called so denervated preparations. I mean, you have the baby there, and you have the uterus working, and you have... You have a lot of mechanism in the uterine wall, but they forget that the uterus is also innervated by the autonomic nervous system. They forget that there are a lot of nerves from the uterus going up, telling the brain that now this has happened, now that has happened, oh, now there is too much, and then there will be information to the brain about pain and 
enormous increase in stress levels. And you have also the, <clears throat> the other information which comes, which is oxytocin being sent to the brain to help the mothers adapt. So <clears throat> there are some strange, as you say, they have taken some details and looked at it very much, but forgotten that this is, I mean, in, basically, I mean, I know that from the studies of the gastrointestinal tract that the stomach and the intestines, they are regulated by hormones, yes, but also by the autonomic nervous system. And without the combination of the two, the system gets very clumsy. And, and uh, so this is what's happening here. It's not a physiological model to infuse oxytocin. What you would need is, is a system where you had pulses of oxytocin being infused and perhaps also somehow increasing the, the parasympathetic nervous activity, which a doula makes, by the way. So there are many, many interesting things that come out of this. And basically I see that some of the aspects of the physiology of, of uh, birth have been left out. And this may be this, the view you get when you have the fight-flight view, where you see details and pieces rather than the, the whole picture. Mm -hmm. So I think there are many things to, to, uh, to, to correct here. Now, if you then <clears throat> give oxytocin, you know, the problem with oxytocin is also you can't eat it because it will immediately be a little bit broken down in the intestines. But basically, it's very difficult for oxytocin to be absorbed because oxytocin is a polypeptide. It's, a, so it's sort of it's a protein. And proteins don't pass membranes. So it doesn't pass the barriers in the intestine unless in very, very small amounts. It doesn't pass into the baby from the mothers during birth because of the placental barrier. It doesn't pass into the brain of either babies or mothers because of the blood-brain barrier, unless you give enormous amounts, of course. So how do you then give oxytocin? Well, we had one example, and that is during birth, when you, you give it as an injection or an effusion, then you can get directly into the bloodstream. But that oxytocin will not then influence the brain at the same way, in the same way as the, the, the real endogenous oxytocin does during birth. Because then oxytocin is released in the brain to stimulate, you know, decrease pain and to make the mothers feel better than they should without. But if you give an infusion of, of oxytocin, you won't get this effect because there is the blood-brain barrier. So that's another difference between the exogenous you know, when you give oxytocin as a drip or the, the normal oxytocin. Now, then people have tried to come around all these problems with absorption by giving oxytocin as a nasal spray. And uh, at least in Sweden, you used to have uh, oxytocin as a spray at the maternity wards to help the mothers with milk ejection. I don't think it's so regular now, but uh, when I had my first children, it was always there, you know, you could get it anytime you wanted. And, that, and then you give it into the nose. And there is a little, some areas which are a little less, I mean, the, the blood-brain barrier, so to say, is a little bit weaker in there. And therefore you can get some oxytocin into the system and into the blood vessels. And then they, the oxytocin will go into the blood, and then you will have, it will help with your, with your milk injection. And I've seen these absorption curves and it looks pretty convincing. Now, then people have expanded the, the research on oxytocin spray and started to look if you can also can get some of these other effects. I mean, on social interaction, you know, on, 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 uh, on uh, stress levels. And, um, there is, there are lots of studies have been performed. And um, at least in some of them, you can see that to a certain extent, you can increase, um, you know, the interest in social interaction and the skills of social interaction, you know, by understanding, interpreting the mood of, of the one you're interacting with. Um, and you increase these capacities and, and that, 
I think very early it was shown that it was better in autistic children than in adults, or rather I would say those who have a bad capacity, sometimes you could influence to a higher degree than those who are already in the top. Now, they also had some effects on trust and stress levels, but not the full spectrum, I would say. You don't really see the anti-stress, the, you know, the really strong anti-stress effects of oxytocin, like lowering of blood pressure and things. So that's, and that was my problem with that. And then there has been some studies saying that, oh, all this can't be true because there is no way oxytocin could really pass, you know, into the brain structure if you give it through the nose. And so there is a big controversy now whether there are any effects of oxytocin spray or not. I still think there are, but I don't think you have the full pattern of oxytocin effects. And I think it may be that some of the effects are indirect and, and actually are caused by oxytocin being, re, you know, taken up into the circulation. And then when you have it in the, um, in the blood, you might, have, you might activate reflexes or something. So I think there is something but it seems that in some experiments, you can't, you can't see all these effects. But if that depends on how you administer it, or, or maybe something that people very often forget, and that is that oxytocin, the effect spectrum of oxytocin that you induce is very, very much depending on the environment. Now, if you go back to the very, very, I would say, principal effect, that is maternal behavior. We know that all these animals, even humans, that get oxytocin, they would be more interactive with their offspring. They would, uh, you know, take better care of them. They would try perhaps to build a nest or give them milk, whatever. But in case there is something dangerous happening, an intruder coming or there is something that frightens the mothers in, you know, in the surrounding, they will immediately become super aggressive. So there is in oxytocin the ability to be nice, to be pleasant, to, to care for and all this, but under one condition, and that is that the environment is unconsciously regarded as safe because otherwise you should take the baby and run away and make it safe, or you should uh, fight the one coming in or something. And I think this is a general thing, that oxytocin has these two potentials. And I'm not sure that people who have actually made all these experiments have created a safe and pleasant and warm environment for the experimental persons, you know, not so fun to come to a, to a, to a lab and, and then you receive the <laughs> mm. oxytocin spray. So maybe sometimes the positive effects have been blocked out. When you read the papers, I don't see any mentioning of, of, of this aspect. That uh, oxytocin, you know, it's, I think it's Michel Audin who gave it the name, the, the shy hormone. That Actually, you should not breastfeed, you shouldn't give birth or you should not uh, do anything too sensitive when you don't feel safe. And normally oxytocin is actually released, uh, you know, within a known family setting. I mean, it's not really released so much in response to strangers unless you get to know them. So I think there might be something that will come out that it's the, the environment, the setting is going to show that it's important to, to, uh, to think of in these experiments. Because I think there is something. I mean, there are too many experiments that show effects that are, you know, the expected ones. But there is really a, a tough debate now. And some people say that, that um, oxytocin spray is just a fake. It's a, you know, scientific uh, uh, mistake. But um, I don't think. I think... I think there is something, but I think there may be a problem with uh, how the experiments have been performed. And you yes. shouldn't expect a hormone or a substance to cause these fantastic effects in any environment. That would be stupid, don't you think? 
Yes, that makes so much sense. And, you know, I think it's re very reassuring for people who are listening at home. I know a lot of women feel like if they did have, well, and most women do now have synthetic oxytocin during labour uh, mm. at some point or afterwards, you know, and then they feel somehow like maybe that's inhibited my ability to bond with my baby or maybe that's impacted my body's ability to produce its own oxytocin. But I think what you're saying is actually so much more complicated than that. And if they're in the right environment that feels safe and they've got all the environmental cues that also increase oxytocin naturally, you know, it's not as simple as saying this and then that. It's, it's, it's very complicated and, and everyone can experience oxytocin in their lives um you know through very simple things yeah and and actually i think that the infusions i i think the, the big problem is that if you give too much it, mm -hmm. you know actually a normal the first the first doses of oxytocin that you receive during labor they are not particularly high if you compare with the normal level so the difference is that they are flat not pulsatile now if you give very very high levels you get also to high levels. But I think the basic problem is that the uterus doesn't respond differently. And then the, the information to the brain is chaotic and, mm -hmm. and you have uh, problems. Because what we have seen is that if you give infusions after birth, I mean, you know, just I mean, after a cesarean section, an elective cesarean section, it seems that you know, if a mother has had an elective cesarean section, she does not have all these adaptations that normal mothers had, you know, of, in her psychology and, 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 her, and the stress levels and all that. But if they receive this infusion of oxytocin afterwards, it seems that it comes back. So I think the real bad consequences of oxytocin, if there are any, are re restricted to, to labor. And that's because it upsets labor. Oh, interesting. So, so um, I think then more studies have to be done, but it's not so easy. You know, we have um, just summarized a lot of studies where we looked at the levels of oxytocin, I mean, the endogenous levels of oxytocin during birth. And there are about 20 studies and, um, and they are all different because if you study oxytocin during labor. When do you study? Well, some people have started, studied the beginning. Some people have studied the, you know, when, when um, the first stage is, and the, the difference between the first and second stage. Some people have taken very close samples just around birth and they give different pieces of the puzzle. But then some people say, oh, these studies are bad. They don't cover everything. Now, how could they? Can you imagine a situation where a mother would be blood sampled for 12 hours? <laughs> in, whilst she's in labor, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But to get the peaks of oxytocin that occurs with uh, perhaps 90 second intervals. So I think you should be very grateful to these studies and, and make the best of them because there won't be any new studies because I think the ethics committees would be even more restricted today <laughs> than they were. So I think we have to live with that information, it's very important. And, and if you read these old studies, they are, in fact, some of them very, very good. And th these should be known, I think, to the new generation of, of people, um, because that's where you see the differences between the uh, endogenous and the exogenous oxytocin, the levels and things. Mm. And so you can understand that there is no way that oxytocin could pass from the mother's circulation to the baby because it just isn't enough. And the baby, by the way, has higher levels of oxytocin than the mother. So the baby produces its own oxytocin, which will help the baby with pain and other things during birth. So there are some misunderstandings, I think, mm -hmm. circulating on the internet. So it's important to... to um, to correct that because otherwise you won't be able to, to, to solve the problem. I mean, to get the right solutions for this. Yeah. Yeah. That's fascinating. And I think the, the fact that babies produce their own oxytocin, it just shows that this system is, you know, it's designed with intention to make us happy and fall in love. Yeah. And, you know, so we probably overestimate the impact of, um, of synthetic interventions, you know, negative and positive, 
but um but you know perhaps if we just let nature run its course it would all be fine yeah and and i think that there could be problems if you give too much oxytocin because if you have because you you can sort of with too much contractions you will have less blood flow to the baby and less blood flow will always be linked to a risk of hypoxia you know and all these things so yes and i think it increases the risk risk of hemorrhage as well sure so actually what you need is is a I think if you if you need it at all, that's the big question. Of course, if yeah. you need, it, you should minimize the doses, and you maybe you should pulsatile, you know, administration schedule because that would really um, minimize. I think you can take away, I think half of the amount or even more by giving it in a pulsatile way, and 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 mm-hmm. it takes the same time. And oh, then so simple. So if there are side effects, I mean, we know one thing, and side effects are always dose-dependent and concentration-dependent. So the less you get, that's better. Yeah. You know, my next question and my last question, you may have just answered because I think that's really fascinating. If we could just make that one simple change in, you know, hospital policies around the world to give synthetic oxytocin in, in pulses, you'd reduce the dose drastically and you'd much more closely mimic the human body, but also only give it when it's genuinely needed and not routinely. Um, I think that's, you know, a huge insight. But what I was going to ask you is what, um, is there anything that you know about oxytocin that, you know, we haven't already covered today that you wish everyone knew about? Because it's such a fad thing at the moment. It's such a popular thing that I think there's so much misunderstanding um, and Mm -hmm. hype around oxytocin. So is there anything you would like people to know? Well, I think still, uh, I mean, looking at it all together, it is a fabulous system of life i would say because it has all these protective effects and there is also i think there's a ten- tendency that the psychological i mean the the, in, the effects on social interaction have been sort of uh, let's in comparison with the other effects of oxytocin overstudied perhaps because psychologists and sociologists understood when they started to learn about oxytocin okay we have something here that we could sort of link to, to our knowledge. And then they start to measure oxytocin levels in different you know, situations. The problem is that some of the methods by which you measure oxytocin are not so good as the others. You know, some of the techniques measure, give too high levels and they are not moving as they should in certain situations. So, you have to have a very, very, you know, expert knowledge of the techniques for measuring oxytocin when you interpret these data. Because if you use the so-called radiomuna assay, you get much lower values and, and the very distinct pulses during breastfeeding and, 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 uh, and um, you know, breast and, and labor and things like that. Whereas if you use ELISA, which is a other type of, of technique, you don't get the same effects and you get too high effects. And there's a lot of unspecific things in that one. And so a lot of the results, you know, have been made based on, on a technique, which is not, it's not, it doesn't at least measure the same things as the RIA. And I think that has to be clarified because it's just studying two different things. The second thing here is that, that, um, the the um, the oxytocin has sub, so many other effects that people haven't really understood, and it has extremely powerful anti-inflammatory effects. So it cleans your blood vessels of inflammations. It reduces inflammation everywhere, and um, it has these anti-stress effects that lowers your blood pressure and 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 keeps you know the heart working at a more in modest level, it has growth promoting and healing properties. I think this whole battery of oxytocin effects is going to become the real key of, of, of the future research of oxytocin because this is the core of the health effects. Because if you live in a relationship or if you have been breastfeeding, you know that you get positive health effects. For example, women who have been breastfeeding children, the more the better 
they will, after 10 to 20 years, have a reduced risk of developing cardiovascular disease, disease including stroke, um, heart infarction, high blood pressure, and, and uh, also um, diabetes type 2. They have a reduced risk of developing rheumatoid arthritis, you know, and probably breast cancer. So there are so many things that oxytocin does that sort of help us with, with, uh, against a lot of problematic outcomes in disease. And that's also why I think we need to keep the oxytocin levels up. But that's not been studied as much as the, uh, you know, the love aspect, which is perhaps more initially you know, intriguing. But I think that this other pattern the other part of the oxytocin will be um, more studies now in the future. And, and that's where you have the positive long-term effects of any kind of positive social relationship, be it a dog or a couple or a, being in a choir or, 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 you know, all these different ways by which you can feel that you are in a group that you belong to and are, and are bonded to. Mm, and then that has sustained health effects. Yeah. Sustained effects. You know, I. Oh, sorry. I'm just going to interrupt you because I love that so much. Because something that I've studied a lot in my postpartum work is also traditional cultural care, and mm-hmm. so many cultures have this belief that that the way that a woman's cared for in the first, um, you know, weeks or months after her baby's born, you know, and and her health and and well-being during that time will have long-term de- um, impact on her health for, you know, 20, 30, 40 years to come, um, you know, and I, you know, that's basically what they're saying, isn't it? Yeah, but well, that's right. It's right. Is that this, now we can show it. I mean, the breastfeeding model is one because then you can actually link it to how much the women have breastfed. Now you can also look for long-term effects of, of positive human, you know, relationships if you, Mm-hmm. Good, good marriages. I'm not saying it's not a relationship. It's good relationship. Better cardiovascular outcome, you know, less infections and all that stuff. The same if you have a dog that you like a lot. I mean, if you have someone, somebody that you like, you're going to touch that one very much and you will get not only into this feeling of happiness, but you will actually get into these very basic, very, you know, autonomic nervous system related and and, uh, hormone related health promoting effects and I think that's going to be the big story I love it so we've barely you know even though this is already a kind of miracle hormone of the moment but the best is yet to come hey yeah and also as you said the thing is that we also have seen of course that if you induce oxytocin release Around birth, I mean, we know the postpartum period, as you have mentioned several times. I think also, which we, Marshall Klaus would call the, the, the early sensitive period, I would include probably birth in that one too. We know that very short exposures with skin to skin, which is one of these enormous uh, oxytocin-releasing situations, will have consequences for a very long time. And I just saw some a paper from... from um, I think by Anne Bigelow, where she's shown that if you have skin-to-skin contact with um, between mother and baby, full-term babies, not directly after birth, but you know, a little for a little while during the first month every day, a little bit, you can see positive effects after nine years. Mm-hmm. So that means that there are probably you know lifelong effects, as there is in animals, but. It's more difficult, of course, to study in humans, and there are so many insects. I think it's fantastic that mm. you can see. It's also very um, inspiring, I think, for women who maybe have experienced that, because a lot of emphasis is on that first few hours after birth, but uh, it also gets missed a lot when women do have traumatic yeah. births, you know, yes. but knowing that they can still just cuddle for the next months afterwards, and that still has a huge impact. Yes. It's just that you have to do it a little bit more. I mean, the only difference is that the period right after birth is extremely time efficient. <laughs> so mm-hmm. one hour there will probably correspond to, to, you know, one hour a day, perhaps, or half an hour a day. But that doesn't matter, really, because basically it's the same type of effects. And mm-hmm. if you can't have it immediately after birth, why don't take it later on? And I think, of course, that if you 
if you breastfeed, you will have all these effects naturally. I mean, if, you ex if you're exclusively breastfeeding, you, 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 get, you get these positive effects. But not so many people breastfeed for very long anymore. Mm. Yeah, so then, the, you know, then cuddling is, is also an option. Yeah, I think, yes, I think it is. It's, so, it, little, I mean, we know that there is this place on the, on the chest, which is, I think, the most sensitive, I think, you know, for, for the actions, to induce the actions of skin to skin on, on, on these basic physiological effects. So, um, but basically... I think I think co-sleeping is the same, really. I think mm -hmm. I think there are many ways of getting these effects, but most of them we don't get today, and that is the problem. Because, and also I think the the risk is if you're not aware of these things that if you've had a birth with a lot of interventions, you may not by yourself so easily choose these things because yes. you're a little bit outside the system. And then of course you need help and information that if you do this now, if you do this now, maybe you can get on the track again. I think so. Yes, I think. And that's really the role of doulas, isn't it? That if a woman has somehow, you know, because there's so much in our society now that does push you off that track. But if you can have a doula just saying, you know, let's just tune into how you're feeling, tune into your baby, spend some time together. Yeah, yeah. And, and just caring for the mother because then when you care for the mother, then her oxytocin increases and then she's more likely to want to care yeah. for the baby yeah. in that way anyway. Yeah. Exactly. So it's, it's really, I think it's a, it's a basic archetypal situation which can be induced in different ways. Mm -hmm. It provides, takes support and some intuitive and nice friendly people uh, takes a surrounding, which is... Um, relatively calm. You know, I think that one reason why women don't have problems giving birth today is that they don't really consider the hospitals as being safe. Yeah, uh, yes. On this very old-fashioned type of, of thinking, you know, the, the amygdala will, will not recognize the hospitals as the normal place. And then you will have this risk of, of uh, stopping oxytocin release because you... No, I mean, from a basic point of view, this is not where you should give birth because you should give birth where it's safe and where you feel at home. And unless you are at home, at least when, when these systems were created, you went home and then you had your birth. So the problem is now that it, the, the, these effects could be very subtle, you know, that it looks different and strange people, they may be friendly and they mean well in a sense, but... The, the oxytocin system may stop working, at least for a while. And that's when people start to give oxytocin drips because mm -hmm. they think mothers can't give birth. I think it's just that it's delayed because mm -hmm. after a while they will consider the environment more normal and then it will come. Yes, that's right. If you can build up that trust and make them feel safe, then it would naturally yeah. start again. Yeah. And the same could be said for postpartum as well. You know, you were saying that women have a couple of visits for the baby to get checked, but often those visits are very stressful for mothers. They often feel judged and they have to get dressed when they're not ready to leave the house and, you know, drive around and they're still sore and tired. And yeah. 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 So the postpartum care we have, the whole system we have is really not supporting these natural cycles. No, I think, I think that, I think you have to, to interpret these things from the perspective of, of mothers who live when these systems were developed mm. and they live very differently. And, and uh, so we have to protect ourselves from different things, but still we have these old reaction patterns. The limbic systems haven't changed very much over the years. And, and uh, so we could get not frightened, but just getting the feeling that I don't feel safe here because I don't recognize these things. And then oxytocin is stop. Mm -hmm. so I think that's very, very important that, that you, and that will be interpret, interpreted as an inability, which it isn't. It is just a, a system of cautions that, that uh, will um, really, will give mother this, the time to, to find a safe place. And, and um, so the more the hospitals 
will sort of have nice people around and maybe they have met the people around before visited the place. I'm sure it's going to be better. I don't think the system of oxytocin is, is gone or anything. I just think you need the right sort of primers to make it work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. Thank you so much. I think I'm going to wrap it up there uh, unless you have anything else to add. I think this was a nice talk and I think I have talked perhaps too much. But <laughs> No, it's definitely longer than our usual podcast, but I couldn't cut you off anywhere because everything you're saying is just, I, I mean, I've got a thousand more questions for you. Maybe we'll need to have you back on the podcast again, but yeah. really it's been so, so interesting to learn from you. Okay, thank you, Julia. Thank you so much. And um, maybe just before we wrap up, you have two books, is that right? No, I have three books. There are three. Two, there is one, two, two that originally came from Sweden. You know, the oxytocin factor and uh, oxytocin and closeness. And then there is this one from America, which is called uh, Oxytocin, the Biological Guide of Motherhood. Yes. So I haven't read that middle one, Oxytocin and Closeness, did you say? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's um, actually, uh, I think it is Martin and Pinter in, 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 uh, in England. Ah, yes. Give that out. Yeah. Oh, excellent. So everyone listening, if you are interested, they are very um, detailed and thorough um, books on Kirsten's work on, on oxytocin and really, um, you are one of the you know leading researchers in this this subject in the world ever. So if anyone's interested in this topic at all, definitely don't get your information off the internet. Go and find these books and and someone who really knows what they're talking about. So it really has been an honour to have you on the show, um, Kirsten. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Julia. It was a pleasure. Thank you. We'll pop some links to your books and your website under the podcast in the show notes too. So if anyone does want to find you, they they know where to look. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. See you later. Bye. 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 Here at Newborn Mothers, we believe that every family has the right to high quality postpartum care. If you want to join us, learn more at newbornmothers.com. And if you like this podcast, we'd really love you to leave us a five-star review and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.